0: Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. I was just watching Justin Trudeau's press conference in uh, the city of London, Ontario on housing, uh, which is like probably five minutes from here, but I can't go there because the Liberals have decided they do not want independent media asking Justin Trudeau questions that may be more challenging than what he's used to. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, Before we begin, I think it is important for us to share this little public service announcement from Canada's top doctor. Just as a follow-up, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted to take note, you're all, you're all masking, which is lovely to see, of course, but most government ministers are are not now, most MPs are not, most people on the street are not masking. Is is there any specific guidance on that going forward at, at this point?
1: Yes, Theresa Tam. So um, it is a layer of protection. We hope people have developed the habit to be able to use masks as needed during the respiratory virus season, not just for COVID, but for the, all the other... Um, respiratory pathogens that will be transmitted around this time. So, I do think now is the time to get your masks ready if you don't already have them. Um, in our own particular context, we certainly in our area there's been an uptick in some of the COVID-19 indicators. Uh, for me personally, there there have been cases around, um, you know, my, even my work colleagues. So. Uh, that's one of the reasons uh, why we are wearing masks today.
0: Ooh, get your masks ready. I, I found this old Air Canada one that was like buried at the bottom of my desk. So I, I'm going to get it ready for how I'm going to use it for the foreseeable future. There, Ready. <coughs> take that this is i think hilarious and by the way the emperor's uh, new clothes we talk about all the time when uh, the world leaders are just expecting everyone to go along with this thing and not speak out to the obvious but in this case no one's even pretending to go along with it like you see the top doctor and her colleagues up there with their masks doing like the press conference thing of like we will leave the mask because you can't like understand anyone and then like you go to this press conference i'm watching that justin trudeau is doing right now now admittedly they're outside but no one's even bothering so uh, maybe David Menzies from Rebel should like just run around the Liberal Caucus retreat in London Ontario and say oh why aren't you following the advice of Canada's top doctor why aren't you trusting the science why aren't you trusting the experts but a little bit of a deviation from what I really have to talk about today which is the fact that I am here And not just uh, not far away from here where the Liberals are convening for their caucus retreat. Now, you may not have known this. The Liberals had their cabinet retreat in Prince Edward Island or on Prince Edward. I always want to say in, uh, referring to a province. But people in PEI prefer you to say you're on PEI. So the uh, Liberals were on PEI for their cabinet retreat a couple of weeks back. And now the entire Liberal caucus is convening in London, Ontario, which is supposed to be ahead of the return of members of Parliament to the House of Commons next week. Now, the Liberals have had a caucus retreat in London before. The last time was in 2015 when I was graced with an interview with Justin Trudeau, in which I asked him uh, some questions that ended up making headlines when he effectively said that he didn't think the Canadian Armed Forces could do much good overseas in Afghanistan. But uh, in the end, what was interesting about this particular caucus retreat is that there was no place for independent media. In fact, I did what I was supposed to do. I reached out to the Prime Minister's office for accreditation ahead of time, and it's a three-day retreat. They never heard back. I thought, okay, maybe they're just a little bit too busy, too preoccupied with all of their plain woes in India. So I, I had a little bit of skepticism, as you may have heard in the show yesterday, but after I finished, I went right to the convention center where the Liberal Caucus retreat is being held, and I showed up dutifully. I had my ID, I had my trusty microphone, and I said, I'm, I'm here to register. They had a media registration table I went to, and I got the most uh, ridiculously benign answer to my query which was well you're not on the list i said well i registered and the guy there called up someone and uh, they said oh no i'm told registration is closed i said well who did you speak to so well, i don't even know their name they just give me the number and i call the number so i hung around for a little bit someone else from the liberals came up and this guy looked all official and he was with the whips office i made my case with him he said well you're not on the list and he called someone else and was on hold for however long and came back and said, it's not your lucky day, as though there was just some random lottery that took place. And uh, the lottery happened to turn up CBC and CTV and the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star. Basically, the lottery turned up everyone but True North. And it just was a matter of luck that I wasn't there. But nevertheless, I wasn't being dissuaded and no police were throwing me out yet. So I said, hang on. Let me speak to someone else. So he brought over the guy who, for all intents and purposes, was in charge yesterday, a a gentleman I won't yet name. I had a very nice conversation with him, and he didn't seem to know who I was, which was probably working in my favor. And he had asked me what happened. I said, I registered. No one responded. Normally, if you're denied accreditation to something, you will have the courtesy of a rejection that will tell you why you were accredited. In this case, the prime minister's office gave us no information, no communication whatsoever. I sent numerous emails. I called their media relations hotline. I emailed Justin Trudeau's senior press secretary directly no response whatsoever. And all of these people that were being phoned at the media registration table, no one would give a name and no one would give a reason. They just said, you are not allowed. You're not on the list. You're not accredited. So as it stands, I have been banned from covering not only the Liberal caucus retreat run and funded by taxpayer dollars by the government of Canada, but I have been banned from covering a retreat in my own city. Now, this also means I was not permitted to attend a press conference that Justin Trudeau is holding right now on housing. He's speaking at great length about how great the mayor of London is and all the great things that Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are doing in London, Ontario. But a journalist who happens to live in London that isn't one of their chosen folks is not permitted to go. Now, I had to tune out at the beginning of this show here. My colleague who's watching that just sent me a message to say that a student journalist got a question now I'm all for student journalism and people being able to cut their teeth but it is a little suspect when not to toot my own horn well I guess I am tooting my horn a little bit but someone who has over uh, well if I'm really being technical 13 years experience in media who has interviewed Justin Trudeau before who has attended Justin Trudeau press conferences before and the sky has not fallen I'm not allowed to be there it is not a question of, oh, you missed the registration cutoff. This is the Liberal government making a very clear and determined and a very concerted effort to exclude a certain type of media from their events. Now, I, people are saying on Twitter, are you surprised? Truth be told, yes and no. This is not the first time this has happened. You may recall in the 2019 election, we had a heck of a time getting access to the Liberals' events. We went to uh, one of theirs, and by I, I, we, I mean I, I showed up with a bag hoping we could go on the Liberal plane and we'd pay our way like every other outlet who has to be on the plane or chooses to be on the plane does. And they just said, you are not coming. And at one point, they had police remove me from what was a public event. I wasn't even there as, at that point in the media line. I was just there as a member of the public, and I was removed. They apologized for that, but never reversed course on their standing decision to not accredit True North to liberal campaign events. That was the Liberal Party of Canada. Now, you may say it sends a very bad message and it's very problematic, but the Liberal Party of Canada is a private organization in terms of what the law requires of it. It can decide what to do with its own events. It is uh, an organization that has the prerogative, like, you know, Joe's chicken shack does, to decide who gets in and who doesn't. The Liberal Caucus Retreat is a Partisan event, yes, but it is a government event. It is the Prime Minister's office, an organ of the executive branch of government in Canada that is running this, which means there is a legal obligation to respect charter rights, of which freedom of the press is a very important one, falling under freedom of expression. And if you look at government obligations on press freedom, they're very different than private obligations, which really don't exist in that sense. Uh, Government obligations have to comply with the Charter. And in 2019, True North was also banned from covering the leaders' debates that were taking place, which were run by a national consortium, a national council, a bureaucracy that had been established, that denied True North and denied rebel accreditation. Now, we took that to federal court and we won an injunction which gave us accreditation to cover the debate. And we asked Justin Trudeau questions, we asked uh, Jagmeet Singh questions, and it was very important that we were there. And in 2021, we were prepared to do it again. But in this particular case, the Leaders Debates Commission folded preemptively, accredited us. We didn't have to go to court. Now, Rebel was a bit of a different case. Rebel did have to go to court again, and they won again. But both of those court decisions tell us something very important here, which is that government offices, government agencies, government commissions, government itself should and must respect press freedom. So when the liberals say, well, we don't want you, you're not on the list, registration's closed for whatever reason, they're actually, I would argue, breaking the law. And even if you don't go that far, they're doing something that is fundamentally wrong in a democratic and pluralist society, which is to say we are picking and choosing who we believe is legitimate media which has been the core frustration that people like me have been raising about the liberal government's internet regulation bills. This idea that government is picking and choosing winners. They're picking and choosing who gets to be a content creator, who gets to be a publisher, who gets to be a broadcaster, who gets to be a podcaster. These are all questions that are inevitably baked in. So here we have the complete and utter test case, which is an independent journalist with an outlet that perhaps you disagree with our editorial position, but an outlet that has been around for several years in Canada, has credibly covered and reported on events around the world, has been accredited by government bodies. We were accredited by the Leaders' Debates Commission. We were accredited by the Public Order Emergency Commission. We were accredited by the Canada-UK Media Freedom Council. We have been accredited by the World Economic Forum even, if you want to go that far, we have been accredited by places that are far more discerning, one might think, than the government of Canada. And what is fascinating here is that there has so far been very little to no uh, engagement on this from outlets who are accredited. Now, again, I've tweeted on this. I haven't reached out to individually journalists that are at this press conference yet. So they're busy. They're on the road. Maybe they haven't seen it. But I would love to see some of the folks from the Toronto Star and the National Post, perhaps, and CBC to say, well, hang on, maybe I don't like the idea of these outlets picking and choosing or these governments picking and choosing which outlets are legit and which ones are not, because that is the decision that's being made by the government. And just to give you a bit of context here, it was just a few days ago that both Stephen Gilbeau and Pablo Rodriguez were raising a stink about how exclusionary they felt the Conservative Convention was because they didn't let Nora Lurito, who was that left-wing commentator who I believe had a right to be at the Conservative Convention, and uh, Tasha Keridan, and to not let the Liberal ministers themselves in because uh, Pablo Rodriguez wanted to be hanging out with the Conservatives, evidently. But this was where they raised a stink. And I think they were right to. I think the Conservative Party may not have had a legal obligation because it is a private organization, but I think morally they probably should have. Uh, In this case, the government is losing both morally and legally. The government has decided that it does not want to respect press freedom. And to be fair, I've had some engagement with the Canadian Association of Journalists on this. I've had people that have preemptively reached out to me and said, hey, if you sue the government, we're going to help you. And I, I certainly don't think we're at that stage yet. What I would love here is for the Liberal government to say, we made a mistake. We will accredit you like other journalists. And if there is a behavioral issue, if I go in and I start having a hissy fit at the microphone and being disruptive, then throw me out. But they're not making a claim based on that. They're not saying right now anything at all. They are fundamentally denying me even the right to review whatever criteria it it is by which they are making this decision, which is why it is so particularly concerning. And uh, press freedom is not in a special category. It is part of freedom of expression. My press freedom is the same as yours. And I think it's very important that we talk about this and that the liberals are unafraid to uh, perhaps have someone that's going to ask them a, a question that they might not like—that is part of what press freedom is. And you know, you know, if the roles were reversed and Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives were to be in government, and they say, "Ah, oh, you know, we don't like that uh, CBC. We're not going to let them to our press conferences," there would be like Amnesty International would be descending on Ottawa. To protest that. So I'm not saying I need Amnesty International to take up my case but I am saying that anyone who values press freedom needs to do so continuously and the Liberals are clearly failing this test. We'll have more to say on this a little bit later on in the show. The real substance of the announcement, which I was actually eager to talk to Justin Trudeau and his uh, Liberal members of Parliament about is housing. And I actually would have raised at this press conference, had I been allowed there, a question based on the report done by Professor Ross McKittrick who we've had on the show before he's an economics professor at the University of Guelph and and also does great work with the Fraser Institute he has come out with a new study called wrong move at the wrong time talking about in the midst of a housing crisis why government regulations on energy efficiency are making the cost of homes much much worse Ross McKittrick joins me now always good to talk to you Ross thanks for coming on today
1: hi Andrew my pleasure
0: so let's first off talk about what it is you were setting out to analyze here, because we know that home values, just based on uh, any number of uh, criteria are going up in cost. We know that uh, people, especially young people, are being essentially priced out of the market here. You've touched on an aspect that I don't hear discussed in the housing context as much as mm-hmm. it should here. Uh,
1: what I'm looking at is uh, a detail that's buried in the federal government's emission reduction plan, which was published last year. I got some attention, the plan got some attention at the time, but a little detail uh, is buried in it, which is a requirement for new homes as of 2025 to be 61% more energy efficient and by 2030, 65% more energy efficient and commercial buildings have to be 59% more energy efficient. And I just couldn't believe that that is in the report. um, And that there was no discussion around it is it even possible? And this is more energy efficient compared to 2019. So if you looked at houses built in 1919, I don't think we're 65% more energy efficient than houses built in 1919, but maybe we could get there. But 2019 houses in Canada are already very energy efficient where they're insulated, double glazed windows, all, all that stuff. So we're already very energy efficient. And they're now saying, Basically you have to build houses that don't use any energy and how on earth people are supposed to heat their house and light their house and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I did some looking into potential cost estimates here. I looked at information from the Canadian home builders association. They put some numbers out and my estimate is, and I think it's probably a bit optimistic, but it'll raise the cost of building a new home in Canada by about 8.3%. And so that on a national average basis is over 50,000 per, uh, per house. And that in turn is going to have some negative economic impacts, reduce GDP, but it'll also really hit the construction industry hard. I think uh, we'll see output and employment falling in the construction sector, which is the opposite of what we need. We need a lot more people working in the home building sector.
0: I think it's important to note for the audience, just to be absolutely clear, we're talking about new houses here. So uh, that is, is particularly interesting when I I look at, you know, in a new house, if you're going to make something even more energy efficient, like, are we talking about a different grade of windows? Are we talking about a different grade of insulation? I mean, where is that money going to, to, to meet this very aggressive uh, efficiency target?
1: Yeah. And unfortunately a lot of people who are real advocates for an aggressive energy efficiency agenda. They they always assume that no matter how rigid you set these targets, people always benefit from them because you save money on the energy down the road. People already have the option of increasing the energy efficiency of their homes and people do, but only up to a point. After that, it's not worth it. Uh, you, you don't really get the payoff from it or you might just rather spend your money on something else. Uh, this kind of regulation, uh, it's going to, if it even, again, if it's even possible, and there's nothing in there about how this could even be done. But um, if it's possible to build new homes that are 65 percent more energy efficient than they were in 2019, it means you have to throw a lot of money at this one aspect of of a house, and people, it's a waste of money for most people. I should add one other thing, and that is right now it's on new houses but there is discussion in the the building codes circle about adding these requirements on existing houses. So anytime you go to do a renovation now, you may be required, uh, if the new rules come in, you may be required to hit even more ambitious targets. So um, just because you own a house now, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be safe from this crazy agenda.
0: Is that is that a wood stove I, I see in the background uh, on yours? Because I I mean that's very energy efficient, but that raises other issues from the government. So I mean that's the that is the irony the here natural here gas is powered, If people are using yeah. these alternative sources, that makes other problems. The the regulators would say
1: that's a natural gas powered stove, and uh, you know those are in the crosshairs of regulators as well. Um, I think you may have to have a wood stove in your house because i don't know how else you're going to heat it if uh, mm-hmm. if these rules come through um but in in the case you mentioned that um you hadn't heard any discussion of this aspect of the issue and, and i agree this is some it's there in the report it's not prominent but it's such a crazy number like a 65 percent improvement in energy efficiency with no guidance about how that's going to happen and no calculation of how much it will cost or whether it's worth it. To put it in perspective, the, like it doesn't reduce greenhouse gas emissions very much, but per tonne of emission reductions, it's 50 times more expensive than the carbon tax. So if you think the carbon tax is taking a chunk out of people's living standards, this kind of regulation is even more expensive. It, it really accomplishes very little, and it does so at an incredibly high cost.
0: Well, and I would also point out here, and, and you have a section in the report that talks about deadweight losses, and which is you know to say when firms are uh, essentially passing on to consumers these increase in, in construction costs. And the one thing here is that if we're baking this in, it, it's not even where a lot of consumers have the option to do this? Uh, You know, because a lot of the energy efficiency proposals that we've seen in the past, you could make some sort of a business case for it. Admittedly, often those rely on tax credits and and subsidies. But, you know, if something's going to save you money, you'll do it. At this point, we're talking about about installations in homes that go well above what you could ever hope to gain from these uh, efficiencies, supposedly. Hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a large literature in the economics field looking at these kinds of energy efficiency regulations. And, In economics, um, people have tended to, um, be fairly pessimistic that these are worth it, that governments typically way overestimate the value of these, um, energy efficiency mandates, but when people have gone afterwards and looked at, okay, how much did this house actually save from having to redo all its windows? Uh, the answer is it's a negative rate of return. Um, oftentimes people never recover the upfront investment, which means the homeowners were justified in not doing it voluntarily. So then if you force them to do it, you haven't made them better off. You make them worse off. And in this case, it's a, I think we can guarantee a hundred percent, this kind of regulation will make people much worse off. And, and I'm it's there in the title of the report wrong move, but it's also at the wrong time. I mean, of all the terrible times to add eight, percent to the cost of building a home um, now when we already have a crisis of affordability and housing, it's absolutely baffling to me.
0: Now, looking at the regional breakdown here, you, you say it's a national average of, of just shy of, of 55,000. Uh, in BC, 78,000 is the average uh, cost increase in Ontario, where, where you and I are, 71,800. On the low end, you've got uh, you know New Brunswick, 22,000, Newfoundland, uh, 22,000. Uh, is, is that disparity just because of kind of the general average cost of homes, or are there other regional specific factors that are making things a little bit less aggressive in the prairies in Atlantic Canada here and and more in, in BC and Ontario.
1: Um, So that particular calculation is just based on the regional variation in the, in the cost of building homes, uh, the estimated cost of building homes. Uh, There are also regional disparities in, in terms of the macroeconomic impact. Um, uh, But uh, in the case of Ontario and BC, just because of the way the market's gone, this is the most expensive place to build new homes. And um, so that's why, uh, since it's a, a cost percentage estimate, that's why that number comes out over 70,000 here and in other places it's under 25,000.
0: What we hear, I mean, even about, oh, I don't know, when was it, 30 minutes ago, Justin Trudeau in, in London, Ontario, speaking about housing, uses the line, which is not entirely on, inaccurate, which is that, there is not just one lever that government can pull that's going to solve the housing crisis. But I'm struck by what you pointed out about how wildly disproportionate this increase in cost is compared to even the carbon tax alone. If you were to pull one, this would be a pretty good one to pull.
1: Well, I think if, if they were serious about wanting to get the cost of housing down, what they should do is say, Uh, forget that part of the emission reduction plan, like just scratch it out. We're not going to go ahead with it. And the other uh, rumored changes to building codes on the energy efficiency front, they're all on pause. Uh, That's easy, it's no cost to them, doesn't really have any emission consequences, but it does mean that those cost increases won't happen. The fact that uh, this government is not able to uh, walk away from any of its climate policies because that's their top priority, I think gives you an idea more generally of whether they're going to be successful in addressing the housing crisis generally. It's, uh, I just don't think it's, it's yet a priority for them.
0: you mentioned in the report as well as sort of a a hint at perhaps some future research you might do on this or or something that might be taken up elsewhere that it it furthers that disparity in in generation as well because you know the older generation they already have their homes they've uh, not required necessarily a new home and that's not to say they, they won't buy a new home but younger people that are entering the housing market that have to wait for new homes to be built to enter and to have a house they're the ones that bear this burden so it really furthers what has already been a pretty significant and I'd say very relevant gap in just, I don't like using the word equity because of the political implications of it, but basically in, in the access to the housing market, I'll say.
1: Yeah, there um, there are some disturbing um, distributional aspects to this kind of policy because you're right. I mean, someone like me, I own my home um, and so I'm not really affected by this unless I, I hope to sell this and buy a, a new build. But um, this, uh, th- this just adds to the burden of, of the younger generation and also to the families who are trying to support them in that first home purchase. And, um, it also negatively affects it. People that are working in the construction sector, but I, I do think there's a distributional aspect to this, which is, is really disturbing. Just that it's, at a, um, people at the lower end of their income earning uh, stage and people who are currently out of the housing market that want to get in. And they're the ones that will be um, most negatively affected.
0: The one thing about the carbon tax is you can sort of draw a line and, and say where that money is going and, and who benefits from it. And I'm curious with this, uh, who's benefiting from from this? I mean, all this money that, that's being spent on these houses, is it people that are in the green energy sector that are making the money off this?
1: Yep. Uh, it's the people that have... Um, uh, home energy efficiency gadgets for sale because they're in a position now where they sell lots of stuff, but they don't sell everything they like to sell because customers look at it and say, well, that costs way too much and I'm not interested in buying it. I'd rather spend my money on something else. Thank you very much. And now the government's going to say you have to buy it. So it um, people in that sector uh, will benefit because all of a sudden they have a captive market and people have no choice they have to spend the money on on whether it's insulation or heat pumps or or um window systems lighting systems um you have to buy certain types now that you might have preferred not to buy so that group benefits everybody else loses
0: I've never built a, a new house before, but you know, I've done renovations and fixed things and there's nothing more infuriating than needing to spend money on something that you don't want, but you need that will pr- derive, you know, value. It's like, you know, replacing a, a deck or replacing a concrete slab because it's like, you know, the money you're going to invest in your house. I'd love to invest in expanding the kitchen, building an addition, putting in something that I like. And that's the problem here is that these are, are either going to completely price people out of having a, a new home altogether Or, you know, that $50,000 national average that they have to spend on these energy things is uh, going to come at the expense of square footage, say, that they might have wanted or needed.
1: Sure, yeah. It might be an extra bedroom that you needed that you can't have, or it it can be an upgrade to the kitchen. Um, Again, it's, it's the issue is people have their own preferences of what they want to spend their money on. And... Some of that includes energy efficiency and the comfort of having a home that's not drafty and that sort of thing. So they already spend money on that. But everybody's got a certain point where they say, "Okay, that's that's enough of that. But I also want a pool in the backyard. Um, And this is taking away all those options that uh, it's forcing people to spend a great deal of money on one particular thing that is way past the point of marginal benefit for people.
0: Uh, Professor Ross McKittrick, the report is called Wrong Move at the Wrong Time, Economic Impacts of the New Federal Building Energy Efficiency Mandates. That came out this week from the Fraser Institute. Ross, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure.
0: Thank you. I, speaking of housing, I felt bad. I have like this boring gray background. Ross was like living in a place that I couldn't have designed a better set then. So uh, this is the problem. This is the housing market inequality in in effect there. Uh, it is quite baffling. And, you know, Justin Trudeau was asked a, a question by one reporter this morning, or I guess it was this afternoon of, you know, do you want house prices to go down? And even that, which is a simple question, he's like, well, uh, they, they can't go up. Okay, do you want them to freeze? Do you want them to go down? And this is where you get this sort of boomer millennial boomer gen z fighting and i I don't want to wade in i mean i'm a millennial but i hate the word so i don't i i self-identify as a boomer i guess i'm just as frotchety but the thing about it is that you end up with these generational spats because obviously you know some folks who have had their house and they've invested in that they don't want to lose any value on that but the result of this is a complete crisis i've had a request to reignite the water heater debate no i'm not reigniting the water heater debate although i will say uh, that i guess renting a water heater is one way of you know saving like a couple thousand dollars up front but in the end you'll uh, you'll lose money so uh well why don't you just rent everything rent the windows rent the well rent the whole house no because then you don't own it. That's the problem. So, uh, but right now we have people that do not have the choice and, you know, the liberal government they were committing to this line, legalize home construction, legalize housing, like uh, as though they're they're like trying to do their own version of end the gatekeepers, but end the gatekeepers is a lot snappier uh, slogan. So they have legalized housing. It's like, well, I don't know, like you legalize pot or whatever, or like th- this is the, the whole point. So uh, as Sean reminds me, it's all the own nothing and be happy approach in real time. Uh, you know, it's sort of a joke, but there's some truth to it because right now you have generations of people that have been raised with the expectation that they just give up on housing ambitions and that they rent. And the great thing about renting is that if you don't know what you want, if you are kind of at a transitional point in your life, you have an option that wouldn't be necessarily prudent to buy in. But the downside is that your money is enriching someone else. You are building up someone else's asset. And this is the whole point here is that now people buying a new house, building a new house are enriching these green energy companies that have just uh, put their finger in the wind and realized that this is the climate. And, you know, be very, very interesting to see exactly what discussions went on between government and people in this sector when they were drafting these regulations. I think that's a, a question that I should look into as well. We are winding down our time together. If you're just tuning in, we spoke earlier about how I've been summarily banned from covering the Liberal Party's caucus retreat in London, but it's not actually a Liberal Party event. It is a Conservative uh, conference that was a partisan thing in Quebec City. It is a government thing in London. It is a Liberal government thing. It is the taxpayers that are paying for this. It is the Prime Minister's office running accreditation. And what they have done is decided that uh, yours truly, True North, are not permitted to attend. Now, uh, this is not about me. I mean, it is about me, but it's not about me. It's about me in this particular context, but it is a story that could affect anyone and should be uh, just as easily attracting ire of people when it happens, because what the Liberals are doing right now is picking and choosing. We are uh, going to wrap things up very shortly, but this week I have been sharing with you some of my footage from Quebec City. We sat down with a number of folks, including uh, Andrew Shear and Roman Babber. We played those earlier this week. Also caught up with Melissa Lanceman, who is the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Sitting down at the Conservative Party of Canada-Quebec City Convention with the Conservatives' Deputy Leader, Thornhill MP Melissa Lanceman. Melissa, good to talk to you. Nice to see you. Uh, let's talk about the enthusiasm here, because oftentimes when a party's in opposition, there can be a, a bit of a, a pall over things. And in this particular case, it's a party that's lost... The last three elections, but that's not the vibe that you're picking up in this room it's here.
2: Certainly not the vibe, and with you know, with thousands of delegates from across the country, every single riding uh, represented in beautiful uh, Quebec City. That doesn't hurt with uh, with nice weather. Um, the vibe here is electric. Uh, people are excited. Uh, look, I, it's not lost on you. The, the The poll numbers look good, and that has an effect on people. It means that. All of the work that all of these folks do every single day on the ground, in their ridings, uh, is resonating. And the message uh, that we've been on uh, on track with uh, for, for a number of years, and particularly in the last year, uh, is resonating with Canadians. Uh, do you think it's that the
0: Conservative message under Pierre Polyev has... Kind of shifted to one that's resonating with more canadians or do you think it's that the climate in canada and the circumstances in canada have changed to catch up with where conservatives are
2: look realistically i think it's both but we have you know we've got a leader who is non-stop every single day in a different corner of the country uh oftentimes with uh with his wife who is uh who is often uh, talked about as the uh, as the not so secret secret uh weapon um but he's talking about what canadians are actually talking about and what we see is a prime minister who isn't, a prime minister who is off, in, uh, uh, off at the G20, a finan- uh, uh, an environment minister who would raise the carbon tax here and then d- run off to, uh, to China, a bloc leader who's fighting for sovereignty in, uh, uh, in, in Europe somewhere. This is, this is not where Canadians are at. And we finally you know, we finally have a leader that after a, a year in power is, is speaking to the, the very chaos in this country.
0: You're obviously uh, an MP in the GTA and in, in Thornhill, and I'm curious where, because you've obviously been on campaigns before, so you know the strategic a, aspect of this. Uh, you've done it better than a lot of MPs have, because you've been on both sides of this. And, and I'm curious where you think the road to victory is, because in, in 2011, Stephen Harper won a majority by just cleaning house in the, the GTA, but not really breaking through in Quebec. And I know in 2021, we saw the Conservatives try to do both GTA and Quebec. Neither really were. Like, where is that path? And you can't say all
2: 338. No, I, 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 although that would be nice. um, Look, I I think the coalition, um, it looks a little bit, the country looks different than when Stephen Harper was uh, Prime Minister, by the way, a great Prime Minister. uh, And that 2011 victory um, was, was like an outstanding uh, uh, victory for Conservatives. One that we didn't, Probably see coming until into into the campaign. So shift turn. So. The tide turned within the campaign. I, I think this coalition looks different, and I think that no matter who you are, no matter what lot walk of life um, you're from, uh, you know, no matter you know if you came to this country uh, five days ago, five years ago, five hundred years ago, um, there is a spot for you in the uh, in the in the Conservative Party. And because the country looks different, the coalition looks different. So southwestern Ontario, the 905, certainly the Van, uh, the Greater Vancouver area, uh, all of these are are uh, targets.
0: What is it that you would like to champion personally under a conservative government? And I'm not asking you to, like, pick your cabinet spot if you had one, but, but no, going we, in there, we, we I mean, what are, what are the issues that, that you really personally see yourself as being to bring outside of an opposition role and in a government role if that's where the tide takes you?
2: Look, if the tide takes us there and we're lucky enough and we're going to do the work every single day to, to try to get there. But there are so many things to fix in this country. Attracting investment back to this country is, uh, is certainly one of them. Uh, our role on the world uh, stage, making fixing our, our, our very broken bureaucracies, our services to, to Canadians, and getting back on track, on a, on a, on a fiscal track, a path to balance, and, and making life more affordable for Canadians. So there's no shortage of, of, uh, of areas to, to fix and no shortage of areas uh, that will really have an impact on people's everyday lives that I'm interested in. Melissa Lansman, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: People were cheering at something there, and I'm trying to remember what was happening when, when that was being recorded. That's the problem is that you're there and you like, want like, the excitement of the room and the ambient noise and the hum, and then like, something like, happens behind you and you just like, want to look over your shoulder. Like, I remember when we were doing the live election night show in Alberta for uh, the election. Well, I guess the election was when we did the live election night show. And every now and then people would just like cheer excitedly about something, and you'd like just forget about who you were talking to and want to see. And then it was like they just saw some clip on the television that they liked or something. But in any case, that was Melissa Lansman. Good to chat with her. I actually have known her a little bit when I ran for office many years ago. She worked in the war room for the Ontario PC party at the time. And I was a a candidate and she was in the media relations. So she was the one that was like fielding all the calls from reporters asking about how uh, terrible I was. So it's good that she was still sitting down with me after having lived through that. Uh, Listen, we are going to follow along with the housing file, of course. It's one of the pressing issues of our era. And I think it's why the Conservatives have been picking it up. It's why the NDP have been missing a huge opportunity to deal with this. I mean, there was a liberal MP who introduced Justin Trudeau today, Ariel Kayabaga from London, who is a young single mother. She makes as a member of parliament, 170 some odd thousand dollars. And she's talking about how she can't afford a home. Now, I do think that comments like that really come a little rich when you're making as one person more than a lot of people are making in their entire household. But at the same time, I, I don't think she's entirely wrong that now you can have a salary that's in the high six figures, well, I guess not the high six figures, but the high hundreds and still not be able to buy a, a home that meets your needs, whatever those needs are. And it's not to say that, you know, there wouldn't be some option available to her. I mean, Pierre Pauliev got in trouble for pointing to a house and, and calling at a shack one, so I, I wouldn't go down that road. But it is, I think, very concerning right now. And the liberals are just waking up to this problem now. And, uh, you know, I like to think that I might have been able to offer something at that press conference, ask a, a question about how these energy regulations that Ross McKittrick was talking about are driving up prices. But alas, the liberals have decided that might just be a little bit too tough. For them to handle why else would they have turned down yours truly so uh, hopefully uh, when i get off air i'll have an apologetic call from the liberals saying we're so sorry we've reconsidered we now decide press freedom is a bit of an important thing come down pick up your credentials and then i'll be broadcasting a different story tomorrow but i am not optimistic that does it for us we will be back tomorrow to close out the week here on the andrew lawton show canada's most irreverent talk show thank you god bless and good day to you all
1: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show